Valerie is my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The hey there, this the is the Soundtrack Series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and bassist for the Alice Cooper group, Dennis Dunaway, tells us how he and Alice Cooper wrote Schools Out. Okay, now we've got all of the lyrics. Okay, we get stumped on this one line. One line, no, we can't think of what it's going to be, you know. I got no class, I got no principles, I've got no innocence, and I've got no car. No, that's not it. Do I've got no, I've got no money? No, that's true, but that's not it. But first, 12 CDs for a penny. (laughs) 12 CDs for a penny. I could almost feel the copper coin rattling to a stop in my brain. The superhero Firestorm, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, possessed the power to alter objects at a subatomic level. And just as he would transform a falling meteor into a puffy cloud of harmless marshmallows, so too would I take this penny and transform myself. That, if you don't know, is the great James Bewley. And he is telling us about the 12 CDs that he bought for a penny at a soundtrack series that we did a couple of years ago that was an all-80s theme. And it's one of my favorite stories that anyone has ever told on this show. It's topical, again, because I guess this week, Columbia House went out of business, finally. I was completely surprised. Like, if you had said to me, well, when do you think Columbia House went out of business? I would have been like, when did Napster come up? Although, actually, no. You know what? I'm going to be honest. In my head, Columbia House ended when I was done with it, probably. So, what, 1994? So, when I wasn't using it anymore is when it went out of my world. So, I just kind of figured it, it, it disappeared from everyone else's, too. And, no, it stayed around for 20 more years. Now, according to Stereo Gum, which is where I first read about it, they were shocked, too, uh, that Columbia House was still around. But, interestingly enough, Stereo Gum also says that BMG was done as of 2009. BMG was the other music service, and they were done as of 2009. And that BMG, too, though, had obtained Columbia House in 2005, and then Columbia House was rebranded as like a DVD mail order club, like, you know, how Netflix was, when still is, I think. See, again, I don't do the DVD mail-in service anymore, so I just think it doesn't exist. It's it's a life choice. So the Stereo Gum uh, article also says that uh, Columbia House peaked in 1996, with profits of $1.6 billion in 1996, but that as of this year, it has assets worth $2 million and debts of $63 million. And I'm just still shocked that it was around at all. But it, it, what it did, I think the shock was that I, I'm closer to me of 20 years ago than I thought I was just because Columbia House was still kind of around, if that makes any sense at all. And I I had done the whole Columbia House BMG thing. I'm not sure which one it was that I did because they were different. One was 12 CDs or cassettes. I think I did mostly the cassette thing uh, for a penny. And then you only had to buy one. Whereas and I think it was Columbia House that was 
however many CDs, but then you had to buy more actual CDs beyond that. So whereas I think BMG was, you know, a lot more cheap, I guess, in the long run. I don't know. I did one of them. And I remember you would get the card that you would have to fill out of what, okay, I'm going to just go with cassettes. I know a lot of people did it with the CDs. I did it with the cassettes. So I'm going to go with my life experience. So it was filling out the cards with what cassettes I wanted. And if I, I'm really, I was digging deep into my psyche, into my suppressed memories of what tapes I would have gotten on this. And I, I remember quite a few of them, actually. So I remember on a Columbia House BMG type of deal, I got 10,000 Maniacs, Hope Chest. This was the compilation album that was both Secrets of the I Ching and Human Conflict Number 5. Those melded together to create Hope Chest, the Fredonia recordings from the very early 80s. Someone, a friend of mine, a very dear friend, recently sent me the records of Secrets of the I Ching and Human Conflict Number 5. It was the greatest thing I've ever received in the mail. But what else? I also think I probably got 10,000 Maniacs, The Wishing Chair. That was an album right after those two Fredonia albums. It was 1984, 1985. Then I got Bjork, Debut, Sugar Cubes, Stick Around for Joy, PJ Harvey, uh, the four-track demos. Four non-blondes, bigger, stronger, faster, more, whatever that album was called. Enya, Shepherd Moons. L- let me explain. Without going into too much detail, Enya is just what I listened to when I had cramps there. But also, in the very early 90s, I want to say like 92, 93, just a, a couple of months in that, you know, two years, I was kind of into that whole lush, new-agey sounding music. And I, I know exactly why, though, because I remember... I think it was 1993, I went to this thing called Mayfair Drama Fest, and it was basically at one of the local colleges uh, where I went to school, where I went to high school, but the, the colleges in the area, and they would have a theater festival for all the local high schools, and you would go and you would put on your play for all the rest of the high schools, and everybody was like, everybody's great. And I loved it. I had so much fun, but there was one high school, one of the more, we, we did a show called Three on a Bench, and it was about like a young couple in love and then an old lady and a cop and they're all sitting on the bench at some point. And I, of course, was the old lady. So that was the kind of shows that we did in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. But then Allentown, their high school, because they were more inner city, they did this interpretive dance piece kind of movement based thing. And at one point there was this interpretive dance choreographed sex scene. No words. But it was all done to Sadness, part one, by Enigma. You know, this. And so for whatever reason, my 14-year-old mind, blown, So I was then kind of into that was the time, too, when everybody was buying Chant. Remember the album Chant, the Benedictine monks? Everybody was super into that. And so I was sort of looking at all of that kind of music. And yeah, so I bought Enya, Shepherd Moons. And then I think I bought the Frank Sinatra duets album, the first one where he does the duet with Bono, If I Got You Under My Skin, and then a duet with Barbara Streisand and a bunch of other stuff. I bought that. The soundtrack from Wayne's World. Pretty sure that was a... Columbia House by because I wanted Bohemian Rhapsody and I got Bohemian Rhapsody and Dreamweaver. So that was a win-win. So yeah, I thought it was great. I don't remember what it is that I would have then purchased from Columbia House. I think I just ignored the part where you had to purchase something and then they sent me 
something I didn't order. I think it was acid eater. It was the Ramones acid eaters. And I sent it back. And then that was sort of the end of my relationship with BMG or Columbia House, whichever it was. They didn't really come after me. I didn't really pursue them. At least I I don't remember any of that. But I, I remember definitely getting more product than I paid for. But I only did it once. But there were people out there who could work the system. You know what I mean? They knew how to get way more CDs and tapes out of the company than they were paying for over and over again. I was not smart enough to do that by any means. But someone who was, just so happens, my boyfriend, Pete Bover. And so I talked to him a little bit on how we ran a little bit of a little bit of a game on the BMG Columbia House thing. I first noticed the advertisements for uh, BMG and Columbia House in the newspapers. They'd run these giant two-page spreads in the newspapers, listing off all the different CDs you could pick. Uh, but I first noticed it probably uh, at the towards the end of junior high. In the early 90s, there were two major music clubs. There was a BMG and Columbia House, and they were similar but had slightly different deals. With Columbia House, I believe it was 12 CDs for a penny, uh, but you had to buy a half dozen or so over the course of the term of the year or whatever. And with BMG, it was eight for the price of one. You didn't uh, get as many free CDs, but uh, you only had to pay for the one instead of six on top of that. So I did both of those early on. Um, and Columbia House was not a great deal, and you end up having to pay quite a bit. But BMG, I managed to work out a pretty good system with. I would sign up for the initial uh, slate of free CDs, send off for those. As soon as they came in, they would send the card for the first special selection of the month. I would buy something else immediately and then write cancel my account on the card and send it back with the first card that I sent back. So I've got my free CDs. Uh, the one CD that I'm paying for comes up and the entire thing gets shut down. And then I didn't run the risk of uh, having to send the card back every month. They'd shut down the account. What I didn't realize after I shut it down the first time was they were so hungry for new customers that they almost immediately sent me a, hey, we see that you canceled your account. Would you like to join again for another eight free CDs? Yes, I would. Uh, so I would sign up again and, and get another set. And I wasn't, you know, aggressively pushing them to to join again and again. They were really coming to me. They were uh, they were saying, hey, we've missed you. You want to come back and get more free CDs? And the trick really was just to get to cancel the card, the, cancel the cards out as fast as possible, uh, cancel out the memberships as fast as possible. The problem comes if you forget to send one back. So if you didn't send the card back in time, they would send you the selection of the month, which was generally a new release that uh, wasn't very interesting and was usually fairly overpriced. So I ran through the cycle probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 times. So probably at the end of it, we're talking over 100 CDs. You know, I wasn't uh, pulling thousands and thousands of them, but I certainly got my fair share from, um, from BMG's archives. So I ran this little cycle with BMG for a couple of years. This was the first couple of years of high school, I think. It eventually just sort of drifted off. And I, I think a big part of the reason for that was that I had gotten most of the stuff that I wanted out of BMG. At some point, you know, you're, you're filling out a card and there's only a couple of things that you want on there. And it, at some point, it stops being worth the trouble. You know, half the list is going to be filler. I think I just sort of um, faded off doing it. And, and, and also, I think my, my interest in music started moving a little bit. And uh, the stuff that I was looking for wasn't on BMG anymore. Yeah, never would have occurred to me to do that at all. But yeah, there did just come a time where you outgrew BMG or Columbia House. I know that when Columbia House went out of business, people were writing articles about how they got caught in massive amounts of debt that their parents had to call and settle. But I think for a lot of other people, like me, like Pete, it just became a thing we didn't need anymore. 
a teddy bear that goes from your bed to a shelf. 12 CDs for a penny. As James Bewley, whose story excerpt I, I played at the very beginning of this, as he said when I posted the news of Columbia House's demise to his Facebook wall, well, pour one out for bad business models. Yeah, I might not have a use for Columbia House anymore, but I still have a use for PJ Harvey. Duh. So my membership was not in vain. Our story for this episode is from Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee and bassist for the Alice Cooper group, Dennis Dunaway. This is the first time we have ever had a story from a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Very exciting. And it's his story about how he and Alice Cooper got together, formed a band, and how they came to write School's Out. talking about Phoenix, Arizona, the middle of the desert, a couple of kids, 1963, both 16 years old. Here comes this scrawny little guy, freshman. I'm a sophomore. And he, we become friends. We're in art class together. We uh, decide that we know everything about the surrealistic art movement. Middle of the desert, of course, that's common. And this guy's name is Vince Fernier. His, the rest of his family pronounces it Fernier, but he likes to make things seem a little bit better. Fernier. Anyway, we love art. We're both in the same art class. He's the only one in the whole school that has any clue who Salvador Dali was or the pop art movement coming out of New York City and happenings and uh, all kinds of things, television, which was pretty poor back in those days. In Phoenix, Arizona, television went off the air at 10 o'clock at night, and when it was on, you were lucky to see two good shows all week. Ed Sullivan's show was a biggie. So we run long distance together. We run, uh, and the bleachers were buttless. The only people that came to see were the janitor and his dog. So we bond. We're in journalism class together. Now we, we're good enough runners that we become lettermen in the Letterman's Club who have these benefits basically so that they can buy trophy cases to show off their trophies in. And long-distance runners are on the bottom rung of the ladder. Well, no, next to the bottom rung. That was the badminton team. But athletes kind of looked up to us because they knew that they weren't crazy enough to run 20 miles through the desert and pull cactus thorns out of their legs. So here we're going to have this talent show. And all of the other clubs on campus come up with all these things, the flamenco dancers and uh, all kinds of uh, foreign kind of dances and things are going to be in this show. And Letterman's Club decide, hey, 
you know, let's, we need to have somebody to represent us, even though we can't win because we're the host of the show. And I got this idea, hey, let's make fun of these new guys that came out, the Beatles, you know. Alice and I love the Beatles. They had just hit big and, and changed our world. But, you know, to present it to these uh, athletes, you know, yeah, let's make fun of these Beatle fellers here. And so they decided, okay, yeah, so we're the earwigs. We're going to be the earwigs. We're going to buy scuzzy Beatle wigs at Woolworths, and we're going to put them on, and we're going to come out, and we're going to sing songs that are Beatles songs, and we're going to change the lyrics to be about sports and we come out we do the the surprise show and everybody's laughing and girls are actually smiling at us and we're like this is cool we got to start a real band we had this guy glenn buxton who was another student but this was the tough guy from ohio but he could play guitar and as the earwigs we pretended to play guitar and he was the only guy that actually played okay now we're going to start a real band and we're going to decide what instruments we're going to do. Okay, well, Alice left a trail of stuff behind him all the time. Alice, I'm calling him Alice. His name was Vincent Fernier, but I call him Alice, and that's who he would go on to become. So here we are, this skinny little guy and this tough guy from Ohio, and we're going to take, take over the world with our wonderful music. So the earwigs go down to the local club in Phoenix, and we land a job. But the guy that runs the club says, oh, well, you guys are good, but that name's got to go. You're the Spiders. So now, next thing you know, we're getting big as a garage band. We've got songs on the radio. We built this stage called the Spider Sanctum, Sanctum, Sanctum. And we had all kinds of really cool ideas that... Uh, were theatrical. We had this giant wheel that would spin with all these colored uh, things painted on it, and black lights would go on. All these secret messages would come out, and it's called the Electrolucent Mind Machine, Mind Machine, Mind Machine. And all week they'd pound the radio uh, ads with this, and we became the spiders. Now, that wasn't good enough for us. Do you want to be a big fish in a little pond? No, we started going to LA. Now, all of a sudden, we decide we've got to do something really different. All these bands are going on. Everything on the Sunset Strip is exciting. But we've got two other guys in our band at this point, And they both went to high school in Phoenix, Arizona. So we all have the exact same experiences. Now, we fight and fight and fight to make anything happen. We end up uh, actually signing uh, to do records with Frank Zappa. So we do two records with Frank Zappa, and they were so crazy and avant-garde that we had about three fans. And uh, we were hungry, so we decided maybe we better you know, start becoming more relatable. Oh, how do you become more relatable? Well, who has money in their pocket? A kid that's at home. Statistics say that's the record-buying public. A kid that's still living at home, 18 years old. Okay, we write this song, I'm 18. We're thinking, okay, so we can all relate to that. We've all gone to the same school. I'm 18. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, we're in Detroit, and the song doesn't get played in America. But it gets played in Canada on CKLW that has such a powerful transmitter, it's almost as powerful as my hair dryer. Uh, and it covers the whole Midwest. And I'm 18 becomes a big hit. It's on the radio and everything. 
what what wait a minute uh, we're, we're actually we're actually popular whoa well anyway so now we had some albums very a lot of success and all this stuff happening and when we worked on songs it was like five guys in a room all being basically uh the the best way to get your idea done by the group because everything was a collaboration uh, best way to get your idea done was to yell the loudest. And uh, I always thought, well, bringing an idea to the table with uh, the Alice Cooper group was like tossing your heart into a pool of piranha because it would be a frenzy. We'd rip everything apart and we'd put it all back together and then we'd have a song. Okay, we wrote a couple of songs that were uh, fairly big hits. One was Be My Lover. We had uh, Under My Wheels. Uh, but they weren't the, they didn't rise to the level of I'm 18. We weren't hitting that target audience. Okay, now we write this song, we get the idea. School's out. Everybody can relate to that. Doesn't matter how many years you've been out of school. It doesn't matter. You still, you still remember, you still remember that bell ringing and I'm out of here, you know? So, so that's what's the idea of the song. So now we've got this great uh, guitar riff. And it's Glenn Buxton, the guy that played, get, the only one that played the instrument in high school. I ended up playing bass because I was the last to decide what I was going to play. Uh, so, uh, so now we've got this guy with this riff, but he's got attitude. The same attitude that we knew him from high school. You know, Glenn Buxton was the kid at the back of the classroom that had this edgy, you know, it's like you, you imagine him spitting when he's playing that riff. And he probably was. But, but so now we've got the attitude. Now we've got these, uh, everybody's working on the lyrics. And it's the only song that we ever recorded that we knew that it was going to be a hit. It just fell everything fell into place so perfectly except one thing we came down to the point where we had the song written we had the arrangement and everything now it's time to decide let's let's really nail these lyrics down and make everything really hit tar target that 18 year old kid so we've got Bob Ezrin, our producer, who uh, did miracles with us uh, in the department of teaching us how to write hit singles that would get played on the radio. And he's got the, the paper and the pen. He's like, we're all, okay. We start out, we go line for line. Everything's falling right into place, you know, between all five of us. You know, we had uh, a lot of witty guys in the band. Not necessarily me, but I was the quiet observer. But I was the, I was the crusader for, let's, you know, I, I always felt like uh, Mickey Rooney. You know, Mrs. O'Leary needs an operation. Let's put on a show. <laughs> and so we've got... Um, Okay, now we've got all of the lyrics. Okay, we get stumped on this one line. One line, no, we can't think of what it's going to be, you know. Uh, I got no class, I got no principles, I've got no innocence, and I've got no car. No, that's not it. Do I've got no, I've got no money? No, that's true, but that's not it. Uh, Anyway, let's go on to the end of the song, and then we'll come back to this. So now we end up coming back. Everything is ready 
to go. Everything we think is exactly what we all felt about school. There's no discussing this, you know, oh, well, I went to school in Michigan and I went to, no, we all went to school in the same place. It was like we all were on the same level. But this one line, okay, I got no class, I got no principles, I got no innocence. We kept throwing out these things and it kept getting stupider and stupider. And, and then after all of that, it got stupider. And so uh, I'm finally like, hold on, look at us. What is this? What, who are we? We're the kids in the back of the class. And, uh, you know, Neil Smith, uh, the, the drummer, said, uh, uh, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> well, no, that's it. We can't think of a word that rhymes. And they're like, well, no kidding. <laughs> I said, no, that's the line. So that's how that line came to be. We couldn't think of a line. <laughs> we didn't have anything better. We didn't have, we had nada. So that was the line. Okay, now this song comes out and it really takes off for us. And uh, we play it at the Hollywood Bowl and we've got pink paper panties falling from the sky. We've got camels coming on stage with Wolfman Jack. Why is everybody ready, Lil? Let's light up. All right, all right. Ha, ha, ha. We've got uh, Elton John to the audience going, you guys dress better than anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> we've, got, we've got everything you can think of, you know. But best of all, we had schools out. And this song, as we thought, okay, well, it'll not only relate, uh, kids will be able to relate to it, but every year when school's out, then it'll get played again. Well, I had no idea. This many years later, kids still know the song because every school seems to play it over the intercom the last day of school. And uh, actually, actually, this year it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. So here we are, all these years later, and... We still can't think of a word that rhymes. <laughs> yes, Dennis Dunaway. I love that. And I love how sometimes when you can't find a rhyme, you can't find a rhyme. And you make that the thing and you leave it at that. And it's still good. And it still gets into the Grammy Hall of Fame. I'm going to think about that the next time I'm laboring over writing the perfect tweet. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. Thank you to Dennis Dunaway, our first ever storyteller who was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And of course, also, thank you to Pete Bovere and to James Bewley for driving us in the Wayback Machine back to 12 CDs for a penny. And hey, I'm not going to go into it too much right now, but there are big changes coming for the Soundtrack Series podcast. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the next couple of episodes. But for now, as always, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can find the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Spotify, on InfiniteGuest.org, or wherever it is you found us in the first place. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.